Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very happy to have you here today. In this episode, I um, shift themes a little bit from the talks I've been giving. Um, So far this fall, I've been focusing on Vipassana meditation, which is a practice that endeavors to see or develop the capacity to see one's moment-to-moment experience quite clearly. And so with Vipassana, there is a wisdom component in that in seeing things clearly, one can start to see the conditionality or the causality within one's experience. In other words, one starts to see karma. And um, as an opening into that kind of theme of practice, I started with this talk around just cultivating gratitude for one's own good karma. And in reflecting on the good karma that one has received, it's possible to start to see uh, causality at play within one's own experience and within one's own life. So I really want to open up that that theme of gratitude with this kind of a reflection. I hope you enjoy it. At this time of year, uh, many folks are moving into the winter holiday season. And winter holidays can be a a kind of a mixed bag, a, a bittersweet mixture of really sweet, memories or ideals or hopes and aspirations for togetherness and family and good 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 connection with others um, and of course it this, this time of year can also bring up the bitter packs bitter painful tax of disappointment of hurt resentment um, just unresolved feelings and conflicts so uh, just in honor of that bitter sweetness I I've been thinking through reflections around gratitude more and trying to bring the energy of gratitude more into my own practice. And I've been finding this very fruitful, that um, just spending a few minutes at the beginning of a sitting, as I suggest in this talk, um, that just those few minutes of reflection open up a kind of dimension of my heart, I feel, that uh, just appreciates. It's really a sensibility that appreciates. It appreciates the very good fortune that I have received and um, and very lucky and indebted to have received. And in appreciating this good fortune that I've received, that you've received, um, we can appreciate its uniqueness, its preciousness, um, the impact that it has had on us. And in doing that, we can call forth that good energy, both in our practice and then bring it into our life. So um, check this out. I'm curious to see how you find it. And before the talk, I just want to say that on December 11th, uh, Terry and I will be teaching a Winter's Day of Yin. That's a, this is a really a day-long retreat slash low-key intensive to practice yin yoga, sitting meditation, and qigong. And it's our view that the synergistic benefit of integrating these three practices, the slow, passive form of yin yoga, the uh, contemplative moving practice of qigong with the contemplative practice of sitting meditation. Bringing these three together really gives people a a direct access to calmer states of mind and clearer states of being. And that's what we're hoping to support, particularly this time of the holidays, that a nice day of practice can really tune one into the essence of the heart of this season. So we invite you to join us on December 11th, and if you'd like more information on that, 
check out joshsummers.net forward slash events. That's joshsummers.net forward slash events. There's going to be a link for you in the show notes. And lastly, you might consider, you might be interested in more ongoing practice with me and Terry. And that is available if you'd like to join the Riverbird Sangha. In the Riverbird Sangha, we teach four classes a week, a meditation, a yin yoga and qigong class, a pure yin yoga class, and a yang yoga class. These classes are available live over Zoom, or if you can't make the live session, these classes are recorded and stored in our library to be uh, utilized at your convenience on the, when the schedule that works for you. So if you'd like ongoing support in the synergistic uh, practice of yin yoga, qigong, and meditation, please check us out at the Riverbird Sangha. That's at joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. That's joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. We look forward to practicing with you, and uh, we wish you all the best in your practice. And now, without further ado, I give you today's talk, Gratitude for Good Karma. So, in the United States this week, if you're in a U.S., if you're on U.S. soil, uh, if you've grown up in this country, you know that this is the week we gather on the Thursday for a, a big celebration known as Thanksgiving. And um, I don't really mean to get into the the role of that holiday or the origin story of that holiday and the myth around that holiday that was. Uh, developed, but I do want to pick up the the idea of of gratitude um, and and try to put it in a, a bit, offer a few reflections about it in terms of I think what the how the Buddha uh, kind of spoke about it and and meant about it, meant how it would function in the practice. And to start, it might be um, good to have a non-Buddhist sense of the term um, just like a dictionary definition. Um, and uh, in preparing for the talk, I, I pulled out the Oxford English Dictionary and, and saw that gratitude refers to the quality of being thankful, being thankful. But the second aspect, which I think relates to the Dharma, is that gratitude is a readiness to show appreciation for and to return kindness. So it's, it's appreciation for kindness and a willingness to return kindness. And, um, you know, when I was sort of thinking about this theme, uh, I, I reflected back through my experiences of when this topic is presented and how it kind of gets facilitated. And often there's, there's practices where you think of things or specific um, conditions in your life that, that spark gratitude, kind of what I mentioned at the beginning of the, talk, of the session tonight. Um, in, in, in traditional Buddhism, uh, or early Buddhism, I should say, um, the monastics often are encouraged to, to reflect on gratitude for the things they've received that support their, their practice in their life. So, a monastic has renounced all worldly uh, possessions um, and in many ways, worldly roles, uh, but they are given food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. Those are called the four requisites, food, 
clothing, shelter, and medicine. And they are given these by, in, in, in Asian countries, they're given them these requisites by the, their lay supporters, the people that are generous to the, the, the monastic community supporting them um, so that they're able to preserve the teaching and in turn uh, share the teachings with the lay practitioners. So there's a symbiotic relationship between laity and the monastics. Um, and I'd say, you know, in, in non-monastic form, when we, when people start to think about gratitude, they start to think about, you know, their version of those requisites, you know, whether they're gr grateful for the people in their life or say, oops, something just fell over here. Um, they're grateful for things not falling over. Uh, <laughs> they can be grateful for, um, your, you know, employment or, uh, uh, kind of just the conditions of your life, where you live, how you live. Um, and I think the, in terms of psych, what I've seen in the psychological literature, there's a sense that gratitude can, can start to focus the mind or turn the mind away. I should say, turn the mind away from a, a very prevalent sense of what's lacking in one's life. What's not, not complete. What's not, what's insufficient and turn to appreciate what you already have. Um, and, and that in itself can, can is believed or it's been shown to, to, to build more positivity in life, more greater sense of contentment. Um, and, uh, and really just sort of nudges the psychological dynamic in towards a more positive frame. Um, but, you know, as I was thinking about it in, in preparation for tonight, it, it, it occurred to me that, you know, just reflecting on what you have as, as things, um, I, I can see the value in that, but I don't necessarily see the, how, how reflecting on say the things in your life that you're grateful for directly, um, supports and develops a sense of broader wisdom. And so for that, I, I, I turned to some of my, my Buddhist teachers and said, well, what do they have to say about this? And uh, one monastic named Tanisaro Biko, he's a, an American monk based out in the, the California, I think, San Diego area, trained in Thailand for many years. Um, he pointed out something that I, I thought was not something I had thought of before, but he pointed out a relationship between gratitude and karma. So sort of pointing it to the intersection between gratitude and karma. And to get into that a little bit, I, what I need to start with is that, <clears throat> what do I mean when I say karma? Uh, because karma is central to uh, what in Buddhism is referred to as wise view. So it's a view towards life that understands things um, in a particular way. And <clears throat> in, I'd say in popular conception, like the popular understanding of karma, when you, when you think about karma, when I have heard people talk about karma, it's usually in the sense that if something, something bad is occurring in their life, something they don't want, it gets chalked up to bad karma. And by that, it's, it's like they've done something in the past, uh, maybe in this life, and if you're open to this idea, which I am totally agnostic, agnostic on, but 
uh, open to the idea of, of, of previous lives, sometimes it's expressed like, well, I did something in a past life to deserve this fate now. Um, in real mundane, prosaic terms, I once had a friend that I was having a cup of coffee with and at a cafe in Boston. We went back to his car that was parked and he received a parking ticket. And he said, ah, it's bad karma. It's bad karma is coming to bear fruit right now. I got a, I got a parking ticket. <clears throat> and with all due respect to my friend and um, to anyone else that might use that kind of a colloquial use of the term, which is, you know, I, that's common use of the language of, of the term, which is fine. But with all due respect, that's a little bit of a simplistic, if not Mickey Mouse conception of karma. And in, in the Buddhist sense, if I can explain it as cl clearly, um, karma is another word for conditionality. How conditions arise to, in certain ways, how conditions give rise to new conditions, how those conditions, how they come together in turn, give give birth to newer to, to further conditions. So it's a, it's an it's an understanding of how of cause and effect in a matrix of conditionality. And another way of saying that is that nothing that we experience arises in isolation, or nothing exists independently from anything else. That there's a there's an, a, a matrix of interdependence or interconnection that we're all bound. And in terms of under, appreciating karma uh, or, or having gratitude uh, or even uh, opening to gratitude, the idea is that you, in appreciating what you're receiving, the, the, the positive things that you may be receiving, you can start to uh, see how those conditions that are coming to bear right now are dependent on a matrix of actions that you have, might not be able to see at all. And so the, like the very conditions of your life right now are dependent like, on all sorts of previous actions that gave rise to what you're experiencing right now. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about this neutrally. There's a, there's a lot of bad things in the world. There's a lot of bad conditions that are also ripening due to past actions and past causes. <clears throat> but it's it's really appre appreciating this 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 interrelationship that we can start to have um, an access to gratitude for some things and and that can in a way start to to enliven and brighten our heart. So in in reflecting on this this relationship I started to think of or many instances and many uh, people that I have a tremendous gratitude for in the way that they, in small or big ways, opened up something in me or, or awoke something in me that I don't think would have happened had they not intervened or said something or invited me to do something or, or helped out in a way. And in, in appreciating that, you know, I, I, it, it gives me a sense of, of real joy and, and, and tremendous appreciation for the contact of their good karma. So when I speak about what 
tonight, what I want to kind of reframe this around and invite you to reflect on as an access to gratitude is just to reflect on the good karma that you have received from somebody else and how that has conditioned and influenced you and how that may have given given rise to something flowering in your life. And I want to just give a couple of personal anecdotes around this to, 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 to illustrate this and then um, and then from those stories, I hope to uh, will take you into a meditation and and encourage you to to reflect on this yourself. But one, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of give two stories. One is sort of modest in a certain sense, and one is a little bit more um, dramatic. The first one is a friend of mine uh, named William, who over 20 years ago said one day when we were having tea in Cambridge, he said, Hey, I'm going on a meditation retreat over the new year. Do you want to come? You should come. You, you, you've talked about meditation a lot. You, you should come join me. And I talked to him. I said, well, where are you going? He said, well, there's this place called the insight meditation society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And um, it's a pretty secular place, but it's a nine day retreat where you meditate and do, do sitting meditation, walking meditation throughout the day. And I thought, you know, yeah, this is something I've been th- thinking about and curious about. I've been interested in this kind of experience. Why not? And so my friend William invited me to go on a retreat, and this became my first retreat experience. Now, <clears throat> the good news is that the retreat blew my mind, opened me up in ways I couldn't imagine, um, and I would say change the course of my life to some degree, because look where I am now, where I'm trying to share this teaching as, as, as part of what I think is a, forms a meaningful life for me. But when I got to the retreat, and uh, we did not drive out together for reasons I can't remember, but we, we did arrive more or less at the same time, which means that when we entered the retreat center, we kind of went through the, enroll, uh, the, the registration process together. And we queued up to you know, give people our, our contact information and our registration forms. But then we came to the section of the registration where they assign yogi jobs. And yogi jobs are the, the, the hour of work that you volunteer to do as part of your time on the retreat to both integrate your practice with daily life, but also to support the, the functioning of the retreat center so that they can keep costs down. And William was ahead of me in line. And so I heard the the exchange uh, sitting next to him, and and there was a cordial welcome to IMS. How are you doing? Is this your first time? Those kinds of questions. And then um, the the uh, the staff person that was handling yogi job said, "Well, um, I have this job here, uh, cleaning toilets. Would you be willing to do that?" And William said, "Actually, before I give you William's answer." <laughs> I should say, I've heard about these jobs before. I'd read books about people going on retreats. I've had I knew teachers that spoke about their 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 relationship to their yogi jobs. And so I thought, oh, like William is getting the quintessential yogi job, like you know, the one that is going to trigger maybe the most revulsion, the most aversion, the most dislike, that has the greatest potential for transformation, working with it nine days on retreat, scrubbing toilets. Unfortunately, William didn't see it that way. And he said something to the degree like, 
I have come here for a silent meditation retreat. I am not here to clean toilets. And, you know, I, 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 I stiffened a little bit like, Ooh, uh, I came with this guy. <laughs> and the, the, the staff person, I could see their, their eyes kind of dilate when, when William was turning down the job. Um, and they, uh, there was a furtive look towards me like, is this are you with this guy? <laughs> and I was getting a little uncomfortable. And I just said, hey, you know what? I've heard about that job. Um, I'm totally okay with that. Let me take that job. I'll, I'd be happy to do it. So I volunteered to clean toilets and, and, and uh, William, I don't really remember what he did. Needless to say, you know, I, um, over the course of the retreat, resented William a bit. I resented that I was the one cleaning the toilets. I'm like, why did I have to take that <laughs> this job? Um, but my point is, that um, you know, William wasn't necessarily a uh, a paragon of enlightened virtue, nor am I. Um, but he, through his enthusiasm for the Dharma, even though he was like an imperfect vessel, let's say, just as I was, he was an was imperfect enough to inspire me to go on a retreat. And ever since. I have been incredibly grateful to this person. You know, if he, he, he was the one that kind of brought me to the threshold. He brought me to the door. He said, let's go through this door together. And I can't imagine where my life would be now without that opportunity, without that experience. So um, that was a, that was the part one of, of, of gratitude anecdotes, you know, um, and it's just the idea of this, the simple context that we have and it, it, that, that can really, at the time, may not seem like a big deal. But if you look back, like the small invitation, the small suggestion, maybe a book that got handed to you at one point that kindled something or awoke something in you that lit up the Dharma. So that's one part A, part A. Anecdote B um, is earlier in my life. It was probably five years earlier than when I started going on retreat. So I was in my um, mid twenties and I was living at the time um, in India in the Western state of Gujarat, which is Gandhi's home state. And I had volunteered uh, a year to teach Eng not just English, but seventh grade curriculum at a, at a small Indian school, an English medium school in Gujarat. And um, this, this could be a much longer story, but I'll try to keep it short here. Um, I'd, I'd spent, previous to this, I'd spent a year in Taiwan teaching English. And um, I kind of got used to being abroad. I felt like I got used to being out of the United States, out of you know the comforts and, and, and conditions that I was used to. So I felt like I had a bit of travel under my belt and, and felt um, ready to, to explore and take on India. And I, I remember when I arrived to the school, it was a four-hour cab ride on dirt, dirty, like dirt roads. Um, to the town where I was going to be for a year and, and nothing was paved. Cows, goats were everywhere. 
And as when I arrived, there was a little voice where I said, this, this can't be the town you're going to be in. This cannot be the town you're going to be in. And sure enough, it was the town. Um, but it was not at all what I was expecting. Um, it was, it was just very, um, what's the word? Like it just, it was a, just a, 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 a very, uh, it was a, it was a bustling town, but it and, and had a lot of, um, shops and things, but there weren't, weren't, there were no cafes. There were, there was no like place to go get a drink or have a, have like a hangout or anything. There was just, there was just shops for, for clothes, for food, um, for, for certain kinds of business, um, and lots of cows and, and goats all over the place and, and pigs and dogs. And as I settled in there, uh, there was one other foreign teacher with me, uh, this guy named Gordon. And Gordon was from, from the U.S. He, was, he had been a high school teacher in New York. And so he was sort of my, my only point person uh, when I was at the school. And we became very, very close. But as I said, there was not much to do in town. So one, at the end of the day, after we taught our classes and done our extracurricular activities that we managed, um, we would, uh, this is again, pre-internet, so no email. There's no real good phone system. Um, so we were just sort of left to our own devices. And we started to have this little routine where we would go to the ice cream shop one day. We'd go to the chai stall one day. And then he discovered a sugarcane stall where we could get sugarcane juice. And so we would, would dally these little, or we dole these little um, pleasures out throughout the week, because we we also had a very meager uh, uh, sort of um, what's the what's the word? Uh, we, weren't, we weren't paid as teachers there, but we get we were given a stipend. That's the word I was looking for. We received a small stipend, which was about fifty U.S. dollars a month, um, and that was just that was plenty of money for what we needed to do to go get a cup of chai every week or an ice cream cone or the sugar cane juice. Anyway, uh, just after we started adding sugar cane juice to the rotation of weekly pleasures that we would and entertainments, um, I like literally the, the day or two after that we started this, I picked up the, the times of India and was re reading an article in the, in the supplement there that was talking about how all sorts of health conditions, health issues were linked to the unhygienic production of sugarcane juice. Now I'd been there already. I've been there long enough already to know about the importance of clean water and making sure that my water was boiled. And I'd already suffered through many, many bouts of deli belly. But I got worried after the sugarcane incident, after the sugarcane article that I had read and almost on cue, the next day during algebra, things weren't so good. <laughs> if you if you've traveled India, you know there, there's a. I've talked to other friends that have, have traveled. Sometimes there's a there's a repeat you get as a burp that you get. You know that there's something uh, there's a pathogen in your system. And this one was pretty bad. Um, I did manage to get through lunch, but it didn't stay down very long. And within the hour after lunch, without getting graphic, I was experiencing um, illness coming out both ends violently. 
And again, having been through it, been through this a few times, I thought, oh, you know, I'll get through. I'll just have to ride it out, be patient. But this one was violent, really violent. And it was getting worse. I was getting cold. It was 90 plus degrees, but I was getting cold. My hands were getting numb. Um, and I was having difficulty. I was just losing energy rapidly. So I went down to Gordon's suite of rooms or his room. And I said, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to let you know that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sick. I'm hoping I'm going to be okay, but can you come back up and check on me in about an hour? And, uh, when he came up to an hour from there, um, I was under a sleeping bag and sweating and shaking and really decompensating. So he ran off and fetched help. And things got a little blurry for me at this moment. But um, by the time he came back, he, he had gotten the principal from the school and the principal of the school had fetched a doctor. And the doctor took one look at me and he said, this is very serious. We must get him to my clinic immediately. So I was literally carried out. My arms strapped over shoulders. I was carried out. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been this close yourself, but I, I thought I was going down. I was absolutely convinced that my life as I knew it was over. And I um, was so grateful to my friend, Gordon. I said, I don't have anything to my name except for my saxophone. And I just want you to know you can, I want to give that to you now um, because I just want you to have, I want you to have it and you can do whatever you want with it, but I just want, it's a very meaningful thing to me. And I want you to have it. He didn't play saxophone. It didn't make any, really make any, it was just more of a gesture of appreciation. Um, luckily I got to the clinic, um, and, uh, I was, I remember being in a room where I was hooked up to an IV pretty quickly, a rusty IV stand paint peeling on the ceiling, but I was getting, I like uh, antibiotics in me, IV intravenously. And within about two hours, I started to feel like life was coming back and I was getting re revived, but I had to stay overnight for monitoring. And um, Gordon was with me when I arrived, and I, I said, "Well, you know, they're going to keep me overnight. You, you know, you go back to the school. You can you can stay at your own place, um, and I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. I really appreciate you coming." He said, "No, no, no. I'm gonna, I'll stay here." I said, "What do you mean? You know, I'll be. I think I'll be okay." He said, "No, no, no. I, I insist. I'll, I, I'm going to see you through here. I'm going I'm to make sure you're okay." And on his own accord, he, he found like a little blanket to lay down on the floor and he slept basically on the floor next to me. And it was kind of an interesting night because in my febrile state, again, I was the only, I, I, for, for, just for, to make this as vivid as possible, I was the only white guy in the town and Gordon was only, the only black guy in town. When we walked down the, downtown together, it was we would hear often black and white, black and white people calling out to us. That's what we were known by. Um, so the two of us together were kind of a bit of a spectacle in this town. And uh, many people wanted to come in and see us in my room. <laughs> so at one point in the night, there was a, um, a group of Rajasthani shepherds that, that one of their, one of their uh, guys was also sick. Um, and Rajasthani shepherds, you know, they had the, the, the just they're they're decked out like nothing of modernity has touched them. They're in their old ancient uh, wardrobe of like colored vests with mirrors glint, 
glistening in their in their in their um, clothing and interesting shoes and big handled up bar mustaches and lots of earrings of just very very um interesting uh dress and you know it's like in a dream that they came through to stare at me to look at me that the foreigner the point about all this is though that gordon stayed with me and um he really saw me through in a way and it was a I knew this when it was happening and, it, and it's, it's something that has left a huge impression on me since that he really opened up a, a, a po- the possibility for a kind of empathy and kindness that I had never known outside of say my mother at that point, my mother, obviously I would have tremendous gratitude for all she's done for me, but I never had a friend who kind of went that to that extra length for me before. And I was enormously grateful to him and still am. And I remember when I recovered from that illness, I, I said, I remember thinking like, I will never take a step for granted again. Just the simple act of walking out of the clinic felt like a miracle. And what was really, uh, I think what I'm trying to convey here with the idea of karma is that, you know, I can't account for all the conditions in Gordon's life that allowed him to have the character to be that kind of a friend, but it made a huge impression on me. And about a year later, I was back in Taiwan and I had a a roommate, a temporary roommate who was a, a visiting teacher as well. And this roommate got really sick, had a really bad respiratory issue. And got to the point where she was coughing blood. And, you know, I should say in Taiwan, where they speak Mandarin, um, my Mandarin was about as good as a four-year-old's in, in Taiwan. So I could get around, I could, I could ask to go to the bathroom in Mandarin, but I didn't have great Mandarin skills. So when it, took to, when it came to taking Leslie, my, my, my roommate, to a hospital in Taipei, I was really anxious about this. Like, how am I going to help her? Um, but there was a way that because of Gordon's presence, the way that he supported me through my illness, I knew that this is how, this is the way to do it. This is, this is, this is the way to do it. I, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say this, but I, I, I'm almost certain that if I hadn't had the experience in India with Gordon, I might have taken the cab to the hospital with Leslie and said, "Oh, I'm going to get drop you off at admissions at the ER, and you know, I'm sure there's people that speak English. You'll be you'll be in good hands." But I stayed. I accompanied her in, and almost in, in parallel parallel symmetry here, or or or, or uh, just symmetry in general. Um, she wasn't able to get a scene right away, and we had to stay. She had to stay the night in the ER, you know, waiting to be admitted. And I remember her being on a gurney. Um, they got some IV fluids in her too, and uh, other medications that I'm, I don't remember. But it was one of those things where I spent the night on a, on, a, on some newspaper on the on the floor of the hospital to making sure she was okay. And the point I'm not saying that as like, oh, look at me, like what I was such a good friend. Because when I did it, it was it felt to me like this is this is how I can honor what Gordon gave me. 
this because I and I felt that in 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 being there and 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 meeting that challenge, that this is this is the best way that I know how to acknowledge the tremendous support that I received once and to give it back. And and so I just want to you know offer these these two stories. One kind of just a friend inviting me to go on a retreat. One staying there next to me on what might have been my deathbed. And in both cases, there's a way that, and this image comes up in Buddhism quite a bit, where one candle lights another candle. You know, one lit candle is reached over to an unlit candle, and the flame, the, the flame touches the unlit candle and, and, and catches it afire. In both cases, I can see that the contact, the, the personal contact. And particularly in the case of Gordon, the kind of presence, care, and empathy that he showed me awakened something, awakened the potential in me. I'd say it's 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 an unfinished work. <laughs> there's there's still more to go for sure, but it 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 gave me a tangible model for a different way of being, and. I wanted to reflect on those experiences tonight because I, I, I'm, I'm, I imagine that we all have been touched by people, um, and I, you know you can think of many different ways. But one one way is that, particularly around hardship, having known somebody, or even come in contact with somebody's work in, like, through, through writing or for their speaking, but influenced by the, kind of the legacy of their heart and having that had touched you and motivated and inspired you to continue on or to, to in- integrate some of their heart into your life. And this is what I think is what I'm trying to get at is the idea of receiving and continuing good karma, not as something like some just sort of a, a, a ledger of your own good and bad deeds. That's the kind of the, 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 the simplistic A to B form of karma. I'm talking about karma as a network of connectivity, whereby you, know, you can see that so many things come together to potentiate bad outcomes. And we can learn about what causes and conditions support pain in the world. But that's one side of understanding karma. But the flip side is to understand what, what potentiates the good, what awakens the heart, what, what inspires the heart forward. So when we sit tonight, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a few reflections around this, but the idea will be to can just give give yourself some time to sit through and remember, or reflect on people that you might consider to be a benefactor in your life. People that have 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 um, you, I should say, a, people that you've received something from that's of benefit. That's one, and then within that to see if if they 
in a way did something they, they, they chose to give it to you. And it was not necessarily a, a, a decision of convenience. They went out of their way to help you. So in the case of Gordon, it was, it was inconvenient for him to stay, spend the night on the floor, but he did it. And, and as an act of choice, And that, the fact that he chose to do that is the is the kind of the essence of good karma. Without choice, it's not a deterministic thing. It's not A causing B. It's that by choosing to meet the conditions of our life that we receive with these dimensions of the heart, we can potentiate a new kind of vibe. I don't want to get too woo here, but the, uh, like a, a a certain kind of harmony or a certain kind of vibration in life, and so that the, the vibration of his good heart touched mine and has inspired has been one of the big conditions that has inspired me to be better, to understand my own relationship to what has arisen and how I'm related to what's arising and contributing for good or for ill. So I'm going to pause there. I'll offer those reflections for this evening and we'll come to a sitting now. Okay. I hope you enjoyed today's talk. I hope the reflections on gratitude for the good karma in one's life, that these uh, awaken some good heart energy in your practice and in your life. And from there, I hope the good energy in your heart supports the development of shamatha vipassana, or a calm, steady presence to look very closely into the nature of your experience, through which a deeper capacity for peace, a deeper capacity for calm, a deeper capacity for stillness starts to be recognized. And that is available in the everyday sublime. So uh, I look forward to continuing to explore those these themes with you. And again, if you're looking for a day-long retreat, check out the Winter's Day of Yin with me and Terry on December 11th. There's links for you in the show notes, but that's at joshsummers.net forward slash events. And until then, I wish you well, stay safe, keep practicing, and I'll see you in the next episode. Take good care.